But hark, the people rising say, that is not the man to cope with clay. Ha ha ha, such a nominee as Jamie Polk of Tennessee. Come listen, Wiggs and Lokes, all your kind attention here I call, and mark the burthen of the gleeic speaker Polk of Tennessee. Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Podcast Episode 9, The Dark Horse, The Presidency of James K. Polk. Arguably, the critical turning point of the election of 1844 occurred before anyone even cast a single vote for president, because specifically, it occurred during the Democratic Party convention. Now, we know in hindsight that James K. Polk would win this nomination, yet he was not among the major figures going into the convention, and no one expected him to win. Quite frankly, he was barely a political figure at all. Instead, the initial fight for nomination went on between Martin Van Buren still a powerful figure in politics, the Midwestern populist Lewis Cass, and Pennsylvanian James Buchanan. Now believe me when I say that Buchanan will get much more analysis in a future episode, but he is not yet the fateful president who presided over a fracturing nation. Also at the convention, John C. Calhoun waited in the wings, hoping against hope that this could be his year as planned. However, he found his cause completely unable to gain traction, he still acted to spoil the ambitions of all three opponents. Polk therefore became a purely compromised candidate, and yet he proved to be one of the cleverest and most capable politicians in American history, if perhaps not as clever or capable as he thought. Strangely, despite his immense importance in the history of the United States, he's almost forgotten today. A dark horse candidate, that is, a compromise figure chosen from the political mists, he returned to that dim obscurity after his presidency. But we will spend the next four full episodes exploring the years of his office, America's forgotten war with Mexico, and the also forgotten choices that sent America spiraling into the Civil War. Without going too deep into Polk's personal history, he was one of Andrew Jackson's many protégés, and perhaps the closest remaining political follower in Jackson's old age. Polk served as Congress from 1827, and later became Speaker of the House in 1834. He stayed only a few years, however, because he returned to Tennessee in order to run for the governorship, in which he failed. In this light, it's not so surprising that Polk moved into the gap left by the feud of the party leaders. He had few other options. He did, however, have all the patronage Jackson could muster, for he often visited the latter man and paid his respects. Jackson's favor was yet a considerable weight in the party politics of the Democrats, and Polk essentially was almost the only current politician paying court to the old general, relaxing his last years at the Hermitage. On the Whig side, Henry Clay easily claimed the nomination, but he feared this had become a barren prize. Due to the complete mess Tyler had made of Whig ambitions, the party had fallen into utter disarray and would require years to rebuild in some regions. Additionally, the public had long grown tired of waiting for the Whigs to push through their economic program, Clay's dream of a growing America founded on modern economic principles. Finally, and partly the result of the previous two issues, the enthusiasm the Whigs built up to attract first-time voters cooled drastically. In 1840, the Whigs looked like a confident club of the young and rising, but after four years of failure, they had turned into a squabbling stew, or so many in the public thought. Thus, it came as no great surprise when Polk won the election, with the major platform issues being expansion into the West and extending national borders to claim the entire Oregon Territory, 
along with tariff reductions. Many historians, and the public at the time, viewed their vote as a ballot on the annexation of Texas, which was most certainly not yet a done deal. And broadly speaking, most Americans were for it. Nonetheless, the popular vote ended up being extremely close due to Clay's national renown and strong campaign, with a final vote less than a 1.5% difference between the two presidential candidates, or around 40,000 votes in an electorate approaching 3 million. Whatever their problems, Clay and his Whig party worked hard to build their public image, and this had an effect. Polk, on the other hand, never a charmer nor possessing a strong public persona, contributed little appeal to his own campaign either. And even among Democrats, he was a largely unknown figure. Indeed, a few thousand votes changed in New York State alone would have swung the election to Clay, and similarly, Pennsylvania and almost any other state could have changed the course of history at this moment. Nonetheless, Polk, never given to modesty even after losing his home state's vote, publicly claimed a powerful mandate. He swept into office committed to territorial growth. On his first issue, however, Polk would sow the seeds of a bitter sectional split in his own party. I'm speaking not of Texas, but of Oregon. Now, just to be clear, we're going to pretty much ignore Texas for this episode, but Polk was addressing all of these issues simultaneously with an energy almost unmatched in American history. Now, to explain what happened in Oregon requires a detour to the far northwest, where both the United States and Great Britain competed vigorously for influence. This region encompassed almost all the land that forms the states of Oregon and Washington today, as well as Canadian British Columbia. Not that much of it was clearly mapped or densely settled, much less controlled. In addition, neither of the two great powers could effectively project military force that far from the industrial and commercial Atlantic regions, and had no real desire to do so at this time. Because of this, the two powers had agreed to jointly administer the territory, although in practice this seems to have meant staying out of one another's way, at least officially. Neither the United States nor Great Britain had any political offices nor really any official military bases. The competition between them, therefore, mostly came down to settlement and trade, and a lot of political jockeying carried out at a great distance. And I suspect you won't be too surprised that neither one was particularly asking the opinion of any of the tribes that lived in the area. From 1836, with the opening of the Oregon Trail, settlers from the United States streamed into the territory. But we are only talking about a stream here and not a flood. Eventually, a few thousand U.S. citizens would inhabit the region by the time it became a territory, centered around the Willamette Valley. On the British side, the Hudson's Bay Company had formed a broad fur trading network with several Native American or American Indian peoples. Neither Americans nor British much cared for the presence of each other, of course, but no real violence occurred. This doesn't mean there was no social conflict, however, particularly because the Hudson's Bay Company sold weapons to the native tribes that could, and sometimes did, exert pressure on the settlers in turn. And on the other hand, American settlers were often quick to accept credit and very slow to repay debts. But even so, Americans made customers for the goods of the Hudson's Bay Company and created farms on the rich soils found in the region, which in turn could help support the HBC. Into this situation stepped the new president. On paper, Polk appeared eager to claim all of the Oregon Territory as per the clearly stated Democratic Party platform, likely giving the United States control over the Pacific Coast as far north as then-Russian Alaska. However, in practice, private documents concerning the diplomatic efforts 
clearly show he was thoroughly accepting of the idea of seeding some, or perhaps all of it. In fact, Pope needed a relatively quick compromise in Oregon in order to gain a free hand for his ambitions in Mexico, which he in turn believed would strengthen his position with Democrats in the South. This threatened in the long run to drive a deep wedge between the northern and southern wings of the Democrats, and Polk knew it. Yet strangely, he also seemed to have spent very little time considering the possible consequences or preparing for them, although he clearly understood the problem. Having proclaimed 5440 or fight in public, Polk proceeded to fight in public and bargained in private. Indeed, he was at this time moving troops off the frontier and towards Louisiana in preparation to move them into Texas, and it's unclear that the United States even could exercise a military option at that distance. Furthermore, Polk was a realist and undoubtedly expected that war with Britain should be avoided at all, at all costs, too great a price in blood and treasure, even if won. However, the same opinion fortunately prevailed in London, which gave Polk a way out. The actual negotiations for Oregon turned into a somewhat odd exercise. Since the Treaty of 1818, the boundary of the United States and British Canada extended westward along the 49th parallel from Minnesota. However, as mentioned, Oregon would be governed jointly since the treaty line technically stopped at the Rocky Mountains. Thus, once both nations began extending their influence, some kind of argument over this land became inevitable. But as we've mentioned, neither side considered violence an acceptable political tool for so distant a prize, and in practice the inevitability of some amount of compromise was accepted by most familiar with the issue. As early as Tyler's presidency, offers were made from Washington very close to the eventual treaty lines, extending the 49th parallel westward, but ceding the southern end of Vancouver Island, which does lie below that line. Yet at this time, Britain still wanted access to the Columbia River, and the rich fur-trapping grounds that lay around it. Polk, willing to threaten war but unwilling to fight one, at least against Britain and over Oregon, adopted a stance of blustering loudly about how very big his cudgel was, but never made any attempts to use force. He bluffed in 1845 by putting Britain on notice that they'd better come to the bargaining table now since he intended to end the joint occupation, which admittedly was a treaty right for either party. While the British at first rejected the 49th parallel compromise again, a shift in political power in London put the option back on the table. Polk, however, secretly demanded that the British themselves publicly offer that same compromise, a compromise that Polk expressly wanted, but for which he didn't want to be held accountable to his northern constituents. The British, no stranger to the mix of domestic and international politics, agreed and sent the requested treaty to Polk. Now, curiously, James Buchanan, who had been crucial to negotiations, now counseled against the treaty. This might make little sense until you consider that Buchanan had been one of the alternatives for the Democratic Party nomination himself and still aimed for the presidency. Never the most clever of schemers, Buchanan could see as well as Polk that the Oregon Treaty would anger a great many Northern voters, since the party had publicly pledged to acquire all of Oregon. And unlike Polk, Buchanan knew he wouldn't be held accountable for the results and was therefore already setting his political ducks in a row. Probably the biggest reason the treaty came out the way it did was due to a significant economic and political shift within the Oregon Territory, which ultimately changed the risks and rewards for Britain. During the early 1840s, the fur trapping around the Columbia River began to thin out. 
At the time, there were almost no Americans living in the region around what is today northwestern Washington state, so there's also relatively little pressure from the United States to acquire it. However, the Hudson's Bay Company slowly evacuated the region anyway due to shifting resources to where they were most profitable, that is, northward onto Vancouver Island. As such, it no longer made sense for the British to withhold approval for a treaty over a disputed triangle that they weren't using. From the British perspective, the treaty did in fact work out quite well for them. The Hudson's Bay Company tightened its grip where it made sense, and had already extracted as much profit as they could desire in the south. Vancouver proved such an excellent location that it became the center of British settlement in the far west. Now, kind of amusingly, having agreed to this treaty, the two nations then spent the next 30 years arguing over exactly where the treaty line divided Puget Sound which would determine who possessed the San Juan Islands. That issue actually wouldn't be decided until settled by Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany all the way forward in 1872. Oh, and the United States and Great Britain almost ended up in a shooting war over a pig in the meantime. That is a story for another day. And also, if you look on a map, they left this little corner called Point Roberts, which is actually south of Vancouver, but is part of American territory, even though you can only access it from Canada. It, it might have been a very good investment if somebody had actually paid for a cartographer first. However, Polk had another win in his hat, and, domestically, he was also achieving success with his tax policies, which were mostly about keeping expensive down and reducing tariffs, something very much favored by Southerners who wanted decreased tariffs and improved access to European markets as a result. This he managed to do in 1846 with the Walker Tariff, comfortably passed by his congressional allies. This law simplified and lowered tariff rates. However, the budding industrial strength of the North felt relatively little impact from this. This was the heyday of railroad expansion, and every new junction and spur added to the obvious value of the network. Foreign competition still mattered, of course, but the American industrial base had grown up and competed vigorously. Polk and his fellow Democrats had a number of other major domestic policies and programs. Among the many ventures he engaged in, Polk had in mind a scheme he called the Constitutional Treasury to plug the gaping hole left by Jackson's destruction of the Second Bank of the United States, but more in line with the strict constitutional principles of the Democrats. Now, This proposal dated back to Van Buren's administration, but until Polk, the Democrats never had enough votes to overcome internal opposition. Plus, and they encountered the firm skepticism of the Whigs over that. The independent treasury would turn out to have its own flaws in time, but at least initially it served the purpose for sorting out the national finances at this moment. Another, much more significant long-term development was the creation of the United States Naval Academy. At the time, the Navy was heavily influenced by the Democrats. Commercial nations, or parts of nations, often seek a strong navy to defend and perhaps intimidate rivals. In the United States, that often meant the Democrats, as a major political force in many of the commercial entrepôts of the nation. They wanted a strong national naval service. Whigs, by contrast, favored a somewhat more isolationist view towards international relations. They favored and patronized the army instead of the navy in this era. On some level, this split actually goes right back to Thomas Jefferson, who famously sent the Marines abroad to attack Tunisia. Part of the Democrats' ideology 
was founded on the idea that trade was almost an inherent right of the United States. And regardless of whether or not that's true in the abstract, it was an emotional idea at the heart of the party. Now, the genesis of the Naval Academy is its own long story, but for our purposes, the important thing to know is the important, even critical role it played in formalizing and professionalizing the Naval Officer Corps with formal education instead of apprenticeship. Now, at the time of the Civil War, most top officers were still too young to have attended, but many of the young, aggressive, and brilliant sailors on both sides had, in fact, graduated from the academy, and the skills developed there defined the course of the war at sea. Among other things, these skills actually allowed both the North and South to engage in a kind of hothouse, instant naval buildup with sailors more or less casting guns and building ships practically from scratch. Now, for a final bit of domestic achievement for the Polk administration, at least that we will be discussing, we're going to look at a unique bit of American history, which starts on the other side of the pond. It also has nothing whatsoever to do with the Civil War, but I say it counts. You have most likely never heard of James Smithson, the bastard offspring of the lecherous Duke of Northumberland, born in 1765. Now, oddly, he wasn't even called James Smithson then. He was born Jacques-Louis de Massy, according to his mother's side of the family. His father, however, lived proudly under the name Hugh Smithson, which young Jacques eventually adopted along with the name James. Apparently, his mom couldn't quite decide what to call him. James grew up to become an excellent scholar and traveled Europe studying geology, chemistry, biology, and all manner of things which interested him, which fortunately an inheritance handled all of his financial issues. Smithson died in 1829, taking one last adventure in Italy. Living the life of the mind without children, he left his wealth to a nephew with one very curious stipulation. If his nephew died and likewise had no heirs, the money would go to the fledgling United States to fund a Smithsonian institution, the purpose of which would be, as Smithson wrote, for the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. You might possibly have heard of this particular foundation. It's become rather well known in the years since. In 1835, I'm sad to say, Smithson's nephew Henry Hungerford also died, and indeed without any heirs. That being the case, the U.S. government was duly notified and sent an agent to collect the bequest. And this started a great deal of confusion back in Washington. You see, the government had never heard of this will until 1835. Smithson hadn't been in close contact with American scientists, at least as is clearly known, and certainly not the government itself. Congress, therefore, found itself quite unprepared for the generous gift it received. To Congress's credit, however, they did get to work trying to wrangle out how to best use the money, and what promoting the sciences would even mean in an American context. The decision took seven years. In congressional time to forge an entirely new department, though, that's practically light speed. Now, admittedly, part of the problem was that Congress decided to invest the money while the planning was ongoing. This, inherently, was likely a good idea. But, unfortunately, Congress invested the money with the state of Arkansas, which promptly got into financial trouble and repudiated the entire debt, thus wiping away the bequest in an instant. Former President John Quincy Adams persuaded Congress to restore the entire lost amount, with interest no less. Then, President Polk signed the completed bill to establish the Smithsonian in 1846, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
and, in fact, history writing history. It was also a rare case of more or less bipartisan action in a very divided nation, and one whose achievements all Americans could be, and still now can be, proud of. Sadly, our next topic will not look quite so cheerful, as we will deal with war, all at once glorious, pointless, and bloody. In addition, I want to let you know that I'm writing a special episode to try and get at the roots of what it was like to live as a slave in America, because I want to emphasize that part of this overall tale. We're dealing with a lot of big political questions and the machinations and manipulations of men in Congress. Amidst all that, we should not lose sight of some of the basic issues, the human factor that was being argued upon what it was that stirred the heart of abolitionists, and the horrors that caused free soilers to turn away from slavery for good. However, I hope you'll join us next time for Episode 10, The Most Unjust War. Thank you for joining us on the American Civil War Podcast.